We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine booking the guests. In the new Zoom, Dino Weeks and Dave Woodard. Only six days until Christmas and Santa's on his way. Hey kids, stop snooping in your parents' closets. Santa is watching. Here's Scott Thompson. That from the biggest snooper there was. All right, okay, I, I know it's a little early for uh, New Year's, but Christmas is coming, so why not a bit of both, huh? What the heck? Thank you, Will Weber, on the board until Ben comes in. And and both Wills are a little wonky today. We have wonky Wills. When have the Wills not been wonky? Uh, anyway, uh, feel free to jump into the fun. The gang's here. Substitute. Substitution! Uh, yeah, like You saw the World Cup, didn't you, over the weekend? How do you miss that? All right. So uh, a wacky start to a week in the last week before uh, Christmas. So uh, things are getting, um, you know, uh, speed's picking up. You can feel it. Uh, guests are dropping off. It's hard to find people to come on, yet you can feel the excitement. You can feel things building. You can feel, um, y- you know, the uh, the rush of Christmas uh, activity uh, in the air. So uh, cool for that. Feel free to jump into the fun. We would love to hear from you. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Phone lines always open, 905-645-3221. You can talk, you can text. We would love to hear from you. Um, yeah, there you go. Uh, the news department has more updates on that horrific shooting in Vaughn, and we'll have uh, all the latest for you uh, coming up at the top and bottom hours for that. Uh, six people, including the shooter uh, himself, uh, dead in that situation. Investigation continues. Uh, January 6th committee, that's all sort of coming to a head. Uh, today as well down in the United States. So we'll see what happens there and if it's largely uh, symbolic. And, of course, uh, Argentina wins the World Cup. Lots of celebrating there yesterday. Lots of uh, lots of excitement in sports over the course of the weekend. All right, let's bring you up to date on daycare. Uh, some announcements made with Christia Freeland, um, Deputy Prime Minister and Education Minister Stephen Lecce, earlier on today. And listen to the way... Uh, that both these politicians talk, but specifically the Deputy Prime Minister, and ask yourself why we can't do the same for our health care. Because as they talk about daycare, or they talk about uh, 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 pharmacare or dental care, it's all based on the same function as our healthcare system, what is failing. So what is to stop these great programs, which come with lots of pomp and circumstance, don't end up like our failing healthcare system? And if they can work together on dental care, on daycare, on possibly pharma care, why can't they get together and fix healthcare? It boggles the mind. Here's uh, what the Deputy Prime Minister had to say today. I know that there were some people who doubted whether we would actually be able to deliver. But in close partnership with provinces and territories, in close partnership with early learning and child care educators who actually do the work and with parents across the country, we have done it. And so I am so happy to announce that parents in Ontario will see their child care fees reduced by 50% on average by the end of this year. Woohoo! 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 
so there you have it. The feds, the provinces, uh, the territories, uh, those who actually do the work, uh, worked together and created a daycare system, a daycare setup. Just like dental care, just like they're talking about with pharmacare, just as, as healthcare did years ago. So why can't we fix healthcare? Why can't we see all the feds and the provinces and the territories and those that actually do the work? Why don't they come together on healthcare, led by the prime minister, just like the deputy prime minister is taking credit for this? Why is that not happening with healthcare? Like it is dental care, which is a flawed system. We all want dental care for the kids, but this is worse than, than emergency payouts for, for a global pandemic. Uh, the same thing with proposed pharmacare and now daycare. All provincial jurisdictions, all provincial jurisdictions, just like the Canadian healthcare system. All provincial jurisdictions, yet there's the Deputy Prime Minister front and center, whether it's dental care, whether it's uh, daycare, boom, 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 look what we're doing when we work together. Why can't you do this with our health care system? Why can't you, Deputy Premier, Prime Minister, get together and do the same thing on health care? Because it's not new. It doesn't come with pomp and circumstance like this announcement did. But we're basically building these systems on the same thing as our failing health care system. So we're repeating the same mistakes. So who says in however many years... Our daycare prog- program isn't full of holes like our healthcare system is because it's based on the same sort of principle. So again, the feds never want to get involved in provincial territory unless it's dental care, daycare, or perhaps pharmacare because it's a new thing. It gets them a lot. It gets them an, an, an announcement. Gets them a little press like they got today. But fixing the, uh, healthcare doesn't do anything. So I'm confused as to why the feds, the provinces, the territories, and those who actually do the work can't get together on health care like they've resolved daycare woohoo like they've resolved dental care woohoo woohoo it's all good now really really why can't we do the same with health care it's provincial too but so are all these other things yet we can't make changes to health care because it's under the canadian health act canada health act which is of course federal So it's time for the Prime Minister to stop goofing around and come to the table and maybe get some media attention on fixing health care, like he is with dental care or daycare or what have you. But we don't see that. And I'm I'm really confused as to why. And I hope we get to the bottom of this sooner than later. All right. Uh, still to come, Olivia Mackay is going to be joining us, president of the Children's Fund. We're in the last throes of it uh, for the CHML Christmas Tree of Hope campaign. Love for you to help us help the kids. Also, a, recent, a cool recent article by Alan Cross, host of the Ongoing History of New Music. And you can find it on the Global News website. And talking about in this, you know, the recent... Uh, most recent situation, Christy McVie, uh, Fleetwood Mac, uh, passing away. Uh, how long can you keep continuing on with the band, with members of the band passing away? Rolling Stone's going through the same thing right now uh, with the loss of Charlie Watts. At what point does it not become the band anymore? Uh, we talk about that with Alan Cross. 
let's talk about the CHML Children's Fund, the CHML Christmas Tree of Hope campaign. Uh, obviously kicked off with the Tree of Hope way back at the beginning of the month and uh, will come to a head later on this week with uh, obviously Christmas and such. But there is still time for you to help us help the kids. All the details at 900CHML.com on how you can do that. But let's bring in Olivia Mackay, president of the CHML Children's Fund and is with us now to give us a, uh, a little shove into the last week. Olivia, how are you today? Hope all is well. Oh, it's going great, Scott. How are you? Good. So what's the last uh, week like for you? Uh, how is this uh, How is this going to wrap up? How is it progressing for you? Uh, well, remember when we used to talk about how the lobby is so full? Well, yeah. we are exploding. It is amazing <laughs> to see. I was just telling Cam in promotions, I was like, Cam, start putting it on the bridge upstairs. Yeah. <laughs> There is no room in the lobby. Uh, so we've got, you know, the charities coming in uh, this week all the way up to Thursday, coming in tomorrow. I think we've got like six of them. So a good push out for those toys. Toys are still coming in. Went to all the fire halls. Thanks to everyone who dropped off their toys. I was out at about two today at Dean Cartage and Flamborough Hills uh, Golf Club picking up toys from their uh, toy drives that they did for Operation Santa Claus. And then, you know, you still donate in cash um, online at the station or through text. We, we, we accept donations all year round, but our big push is now as a lot of our donations do go out at, uh, in December and then start going out again in January. So talk a bit about that, because obviously with the toys, you got to get them in, then you got to get them out. So there's a process there and, you know, there's a certain deadline there where you can only um, uh, do it to a certain time. That being said, if they miss the deadline, we'll make sure they get to where they need to be. But as you mentioned, this goes on 12 months of the year uh, and, and you can donate 12 months of the year. So even if people are after the fact, they can still donate online. Yeah, they can donate online at 900CHML.com. So we've got Canada Help and PayPal Giving Fund for the online platform. You can also call me here at the station. We have a debit machine. I can take credit cards over the phone. You can come visit us, uh, drop off your donation at the front desk with Kelly, or you can text uh, the word donate to three zero triple three for a 10 or $20 donation. And how late until, uh, or how long until the uh, the world headquarters lobby is open to fill with toys? When do you stop doing that? So the toy drive officially ended yesterday, but we still take toys right up until Thursday, as we have, I believe, charities coming in in the afternoon. And if you still drop it off Thursday, we get them out in the new year. We do call charities, and they'll collect the toys and use them throughout the years because, throughout the year uh, because we use them for birthdays. And special occasions. So that's another thing. So if the toys just don't go out at Christmas, if we can't get them all out, which we do try, uh, we do call charities in to take the remaining ones. Um, We've called Salvation Army in for the last few, and then they'll use them um, as needed throughout the year for occasions for um, their clientele. And so uh, what is the easiest way, do you think, to give money? The quickest way, the fastest way, the easiest way? I would say online at 900CHML.com. Just visit the uh, Children's Fund page or the Christmas Tree of Hope page, and you can donate there. All right. And uh, taking toys right up until uh, the doors close, and we're out of here on uh, the day before Christmas Eve. Is that accurate? The yeah, Thursday, so the Friday. We, yeah, so we're closed Friday, but we're open Thursday till 5. And then 
if you want to head over to our social a bit later on, I'm going to post a picture of the lobby, <laughs> um, how full it is, just to say a big thank you to everyone who's donated to us. Oh, that's amazing. Look forward to that. All right, Olivia Mackay with us, president of the CHML Children's Fund. A reminder, the CHML Children's Fund still in uh, full swing and will be right up until we close the doors at 5 o'clock. But, of course, after that, you can continue to make donations on the website. All the details at 900CHML.com. Another great job, Olivia. Thanks so much. Good luck in the final stretch. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Great piece by Alan Cross, uh, host of the ongoing history of new music on the global site today. And, you know, how many times have you had this conversation with friends uh, over the years and such? Uh, And the article is, as band members die, how long can a group continue before it's not the same group anymore? And tells of a hilarious story of uh, seeing the ink spots as a kid. And I don't think there was any any ink spots in in the band whatsoever. We all have some sort of story like that if you chase the oldies. Uh, Alan Cross with us, host of the ongoing History of New Music right now. Alan, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm doing okay, yes. This is funny that you should say this because I remember like I was a kid in, in the 80s and stuff and, and I used to love uh, 50s R&B and I remember being on a cruise uh, early on when I was married with my wife and like the platters were there. And, oh my God, this is going to be amazing. And I, I, you know, I don't pretend to know the whole history of the band, but I don't remember ever hearing about a guy named Duke Daniels who was the headliner that night. And when I went to ask him, hey, like, uh, yeah, I don't remember, he kind of looked very jittery and said that he you know toured with the band for a couple of weeks when someone was sick on a canadian tour so this sort of thing seems to go on a lot it it does um the platters is another great example because how many people have been in and out of the platters and how many versions of the platters exist that have no platters in them exactly um, it's it's why a lot of bands are very, very particular about trademarking and copywriting their names and it's, uh, you know, getting appropriate uh, ownership of their names. A good example would be the Guess Who. Randy Bachman yeah. and Burton Cummings cannot use the name the Guess Who because Gary Peterson, the drummer, owns the name and he won't give it to them. So you have to be very careful that you don't have these, these counterfeit bands or these imposter bands, or these bands that aren't quite what they used to be. I mean, one of my favorite bands of all time uh, is The Who. And when you go see Mm. The Who, it's just Pete and Roger, which is fine because those are the two key guys. But without seeing John Entwistle stand there like a statue on one side of the stage and Keith Moon doing his crazy thing at the back, you know, is it The Who? Uh, I will have a very hard time going to see the Rolling Stones anytime in the future. Yes, you've got Mick. Yeah. Yes, you've got Keith. Uh, but you've got Ronnie, who is still the new guy. He was He's only been with the band since 1975, <laughs> yeah. so he's just you know, a kid. Yeah. And there's, uh, there's no Charlie. There's no Bill Wyman. This is not the Stones of Street Fighting Man or the Stones of, of uh, Sympathy for the Devil. So... You have to wonder at what point does the audience say enough is enough. We that's not the band we we grew up with and it's time to put everything to rest. The biggest one right now is Fleetwood Mac because we have John McVie and Fleetwood and Mick Fleetwood, two founding members of the group. Uh, we have Stevie Nicks who came in in 1973 with Lindsey Buckingham. 
Lindsey Buckingham is no longer in the group. He is, uh, but a, apparently, a permanently estranged from them. We'll never play with him again. And Christine McVie is dead. So you've only got three people. Is that Fleetwood Mac? Considering the voices, uh, the, there were three lead voices in that band. There was Stevie, there was Christine, there was Lindsey. Yeah. So uh, if they go on tour, I would feel like I'm not getting the full package, you know? So, uh, but I can certainly understand the argument. It does bring the music to a new set of fans. So should there be criteria for what is a band? Is it 20%? Is it 25%? As long as you have at least one member of the band, because you're talking about bands in this article where there's nobody there at all. I mean, well, no, that, uh, like, at, what, at, at what point does that become a tribute band? Uh, a good point. Now we can look at uh, Leonard Skinner, uh, in which there is one original Skinner in the band, Gary Rosington. Uh, they are going on tour next year with what is sort of the Allman Brothers band with nobody named Allman and no brothers in the band. So they are like the sort of being uh, presented as the Allman Brothers experience. So they are, they don't want to be called a tribute band. They don't want to be called anything like that. So um, they they want to be, they're they're cloaking it in the guise of, you know, we've got some young players. The music is timeless, and we're going to bring this music to a whole new generation of people and to the people who remember what the Almond Brothers used to be. But again, I'm not. If you think you're going to see the Almond Brothers, you're not because they're dead. Uh, does this have to be band approved? So another like it's the the official. Uh, whatever band it's you know whether there's members there at all these guys used to play with them at one point or whatever and as long as the management or whoever owns the rights to the band approves of it then yeah go ahead you can use the name well that's what's happened with this almond brothers project the estate has approved it they say fine whatever you want to do under these circumstances we'll we'll let it happen and by the way don't forget uh where to send the checks so yeah i mean sure uh but you know I was a fan of Queen, but I I can't go. I mean, I there's only two guys. Well, see, left. you bring up you bring up another very valid point. So you're talking about other members of the band or a minimum number of the band, uh, a number of members in the band. But here, let's talk about Queen or In Excess, where the band is still all there, but the lead singer's gone. But the lead singer very much a pivotal point of this band. How do you replace uh, Michael Hutchinson? How do you replace uh, Freddie Mercury? I mean, where does that fit in? Well, there's there's only two guys really left in Queen. There's, there's Brian May and... Yeah. Uh, uh, the drummer um, lost his name uh, because Roger Deacon, the bass player, hasn't shown up for for years. So, um, yeah, if, if they go on tour, it's, it's like, okay, Adam Lambert, you do a pretty good job. Great. But you're not Freddie. You'll never be Freddie. We want Freddie. Mm. So, but this is something that we're all going to have to face because if you look at their the, the ages of these heritage bands, these artists who have been with us for 40, 50, 60 years – they are reaching the end of their natural human lifespan. And at some point in the next five to 10 years, we are going to have a mass extinction of these people, people who have been with us since, in some cases, pretty much the beginning of modern rock and roll. And we'll say that that's about 1960, 
64, when the Beatles played on Ed Sullivan. We'll, we'll call that the beginning. These people are going to be gone, yet there are going to be those in the background, the accountants and the executives and the managers who are going to want to maintain this legacy and the relevance of these artists long after they're gone. Now, give Gene Simmons of KISS credit. He has said that you can't kill KISS if you tried. So even though it's really him and Paul Stanley, uh, they've been swapping out guitarists and drummers for, for years now. So why couldn't they swap out a demon for another demon or another star child for another star and just keep the kiss <laughs> thing happening? I mean, they're wearing makeup and costumes. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, if, if Slipknot, for example, were to have a wholesale change of members, who would know if Guar, another costume band, would do the same thing? Um in fact, Guar, I think, has one original member. <laughs> so in the end, will it not be fans who decide, or I guess who owns the rights, but fans because they are paying to go see them? If they stop, it'll stop. Yeah, and here's another hard truth. Uh, the people that are paying to go see these bands, they're dying off too. Yeah. Good point. All right. Uh, you can find more on the Global News website. Uh, Alan Cross, host of the ongoing history of new music. As Ben members die, how long can a group go on before it continues not to be the same group? Alan, as always, thanks for the time. Great discussion. Be well. Glad to bring some sunshine to your day. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Obviously, we know where inflation is and how just incredibly expensive uh, everything has got over the last little while. Uh, we were all waiting for the pandemic to uh, end, and then we could get out, and then prices started to go up. And now, uh, with Christmas time arriving, you can really see. You have to. You don't have to go far beyond the grocery store to to, to see how it's affecting everybody. But then we add Christmas into the mix. Uh, how does this add to the strain and the stress of it all, and the sales and such? Um, but an interesting article uh, in the Globe and Mail about uh, giving secondhand Christmas gifts. It was once a faux pas. Now it seems like the secondhand approach may be the way to go. Is this an alternative? Is this about regifting uh, gifts that you've had before, or seriously going to secondhand type of stores or even services, whether it's eBay or whatever, where people are just selling stuff? Let's bring in Bruce Winder, retail analyst and author, retail before, during, and after COVID nineteen, and is with us now. Bruce, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. So obviously we know, Bruce, inflation affecting everybody. It seems at Christmas we even, you know, we're willing to let the guard down and just go in head first, uh, even if we cut back a bit and hope the best, uh, hope for the best in January. But are you seeing trends or anything that's suggesting that people are looking for other used items, whether it's online or secondhand stores to help ease the pain? Yeah, actually, I am this year. This year's different. You know, this year is not like normal years where everyone sort of bites the bullet and overspends at the holiday. This year, people are really looking at their spending. And for all the reasons you mentioned, you know, the inflation, the interest rates, you name it, it's, it's a pretty tough environment right now. So people are looking at making their own gifts. And definitely people are looking at uh, buying uh, pre-loved gifts, used gifts. And uh, it, it can add a bit of a personal touch if you do it right, you know, if you get something sort of unexpected for people. You bring up a valid point, too, about people who are crafty or creative making something for somebody. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's I've heard of everything from people making their own gift baskets. You know, you can save a lot of money doing that or just making something a craft or something. You know, it kind of it's kind of more personal, you know, than going to a store and buying something. Right. So, you know, you can write a little note with it. And, and actually, you know, this year it's really about sort of the thought that counts versus, you know, being jacked up on commercialism, uh, consumerism the whole time. Uh, different from last year, you said, and obviously economic issues like inflation. Also, in a different time last year, where we were kind of, uh, you know, still cooped up, still locked down per se. People looking for some sort of uh, relief. I mean, even I remember people putting up their decorations earlier uh, than usual. Has that sort of faded away? I think it has, you know, because um, you know, you're right. This time last year, you know, people were kind of just. We still had Omicron. We we're dealing with Canadian savings rate was high. People still had a lot of money in the bank from the pandemic and they were doing anything just to get out there. You know, inventory was short. So if you see something, buy it, even if it's a full price, we've turned the corner now. People are like, nope, sorry. You know what? Uh, I don't have as much savings. I've got lots of debt right now. I don't know if I'm going to lose my job next year. So I'm playing by a different set of rules this year. That's I think that's what people are looking at. Uh, are you seeing in an increase in secondhand type, uh, secondhand type stores, or is this something that people do privately online where, hey, I've got this you know old toy the kid used it once, that was it. Uh, does anybody else want it? Uh, where are you seeing this most? Is it making its way to retail, or is it more something people are doing online with themselves? No, it's across the board. You know, There's a lot of thrift stores out there um you know and and there's a lot of marketplaces like you said online you got you know ebay facebook marketplace and even garage sales and little you know nook and cranny type sales you can see out at the malls and things like that so people are looking everywhere just to see if they can find something that's unexpected unique maybe something really cool you can find some really cool stuff out there and sort of just rethinking and reimagining how they do gift giving this year is this sort of uh, the attention that Shop Local got in the last couple of years? Is this taking Shop Local even to another level? Yeah, I think that's a good point. I mean, you're right. It was all about Shop Local during the pandemic. And I kind of feel bad because the local merchants are still in a lot of trouble. I mean, this they're, yeah. they're, it's going to be really tough on them because people are buying less. And um, you know what? They have a lot of debt and they have a bad balance sheet. So it's going to be tough on on locals but you know ideally if you found a local sort of thrift person that would be great but yeah it's going to take a hit on them and you're right this is sort of the theme this year i think for the last couple of years it was buy local now it's more like hey how can i save money other things i've heard people are people giving essential items especially to family members you know mm, so if i was going to yeah. buy it for you anyways as an essential item guess what it's under the tree now uh, so we all we all know that this is when retailers uh, get the biggest bang when they make their most money when they hit the red or sorry the black and such. Uh, and January February obviously things really fall off. What is January and February going to be like for retailers? It's going to be ugly. It's going to be super ugly. Um, you know, it, it, there's a lot. Sadly, there's a lot of small stores who are just aren't going to make it because they've got that debt. You know, they don't have government supports. People aren't buying as much. You're going to see a lot of bankruptcies, unfortunately, in January, February. Some won't be reported. They're just going to close their doors and not fill out the paperwork, even some medium sized chains. So it's going to be really tough. Uh, hey, if you're in the fitness business, maybe a little better. There's certain categories that do well in January, like storage and things. But overall, retailer retail is going to be tough for a little while. Bruce Winder with us, retail analyst and author and uh, buying secondhand in this year's uh, Christmas shopping season. Bruce, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Yeah, you too. Take care. All right. Uh, the latest charges from Russia to uh, Canada. Ottawa is leading the social media effort to demoralize 
Russian soldiers. So says Moscow. Does that ma- uh, does that matter? And Putin's plans uh, after the holiday as we head into a very cold winter. Let's bring in Dr. Jack Cunningham, Ph.D. program coordinator at the Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History, Trinity College, Monk School, uh, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Jack, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am well, Scott. Hope you are, too. So give us a little bit of a, an update on where Russia is now. Obviously, uh, losing ground in the last little while, Russia, or sorry, Ukraine continues to hold its own with the help of the allies. Many have said uh, Putin sort of retreating and then going to plan something bigger uh, in the wintertime. What are you expecting in the post-holiday period here? I am expecting some renewal and some intensification of hostilities. Uh, despite all the all the setbacks Putin has suffered, he's shown no signs of uh, of rethinking his uh, his basic approach. He's uh, he's doubling down on the use of drones to attack uh, Ukrainian infrastructure, and uh, perhaps most troubling, he's uh, he's now in Minsk meeting with his uh, sock puppet Lukashenko, to who uh, who who allowed Belarus to serve as something of a launching pad before. I wouldn't be surprised if that happens again, if we see uh, more uh, more Russian forces moving from uh, Belarus into Ukraine. But I don't I don't see any signs that uh, that Putin has uh, has learned his lesson, despite the uh, the failure, the quite striking failure to achieve any of his strategic objectives. What is this meeting all about uh, in Belarus? Is that signaling that, in fact, there will be uh, some sort of aggression in the in the few few weeks to come? I think it is. I think it is. At at the, at the very least, it's designed to uh, rattle the Ukrainians and get them uh, get them apprehensive that there's uh, that there's going to be renewed aggression. And as as I said earlier, I do expect that to actually materialize. It's. Um, it's a bit of an irony that uh, that Putin should be singling out Canada for attack just when we're uh, we really seem to be doubling down on uh, on sanctions. The uh, the the uh, the effort that Minister Jolie announced today to go after the uh, the North American holdings of uh, Roman Abramovich, another one of Putin's uh, oligarch friends, is. Uh, is interesting. I don't know if there's any connection between that and his attack on us for uh, for using social media. I'd like to think so. It's the romantic in me. Uh, <laughs> uh, with this chatter about social media and and, and I guess on on how we're um, uh, revealing them in some form, is Canada doing anything more or different than anyone else is? Uh, not fundamentally, no. But uh, we do seem to have got under his skin. Um, we're. Uh, we're we're a relatively modest player in this uh, in this in this conflict, and what we're supplying to Ukraine is uh, is helpful, but it's uh, it's unlikely to uh, to prove determinative to the actual outcome of the conflict. But um, somehow we've managed to uh, to irritate Putin. And uh, for some reason, he is not holding his year-end address to the citizenry. Why is that? Does that have anything to do with what's happening in Ukraine? Well, it uh, it might. Uh, I mean, we've 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 seen leaders, both democratic leaders and autocrats, uh, tending to uh, hide from their respective publics when they have uh, when they're engaged in wars that are not going well. Uh, I mean, uh, not that not that I'm comparing him at all to Putin. 
But when uh, Lyndon Johnson was embroiled in Vietnam, he uh, he took uh, he took refuge in the White House and was almost under siege the latter stages of his presidency. I suspect Putin doesn't want to uh, expose himself to criticism and ridicule any more than he absolutely has to. Is he losing control over the forces? Is uh, are they questioning his his strategy? I would not be surprised if they were, given how badly it's worked. I mean, remember when uh, when this uh, when this conflict uh, broke out way back in February, uh, people were talking about a two or three day war. It hasn't exactly worked out that way, and uh, and particularly now that uh, now that uh, mobilization is being introduced, a lot of the Russian population is aware that it hasn't worked out that way. Uh, you said that it doesn't look like uh, Putin has changed his tune in any way. Do you think there's a chance that uh, other Russian officials are changing their tune and are looking for an off-ramp as opposed to more aggression? Uh, some of them might be, but uh, what can they do without uh, without daring to uh, actually uh, strike the king in this case? Uh, that's difficult, and uh, Putin is uh, is well-protected. Now, you can argue that it only takes a small number of people who are sufficiently disaffected to take him out. But uh, as I say, he's well protected and taking him out would be uh, replacing him would be uh, no easy feat. How do you think Ukraine is going to cope with the, any sort of more aggression over the course of this winter? What the, what's this winter going to be like for them? And is it just a case of the allies just keep bringing in more stuff? I think it is a case of the allies just bringing in more stuff. One of the things that has uh, actually rather moved me uh, throughout this conflict has been the incredible resilience of the Ukrainian population, uh, despite the fact that they've been subjected to uh, really uh, severe hardship. All right, Dr. Jack Cunningham with his Ph.D. program coordinator at the Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History, Trinity College Monk School at the University of Toronto. Always fascinating, Jack. Thanks for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. Take care. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Boy, the House January 6th committee has unveiled a uh, criminal referral. I mean, this is finally coming to an end uh, for former President Donald Trump, citing evidence that uh, it says merits prosecution by the Justice Department, including obstruction of an official proceeding, aiding in an insurrection, conspiracy to defraud the United States. Let's bring in Brian J. Karam, political analyst. CNN, White House reporter, columnist for Salon.com, the Washington diplomat, and host of Just Ask the Question podcast and author of the new book, uh, Free the Press, The Death of American Journalism, uh, Journalism and How to Revive It. Brian, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I hope you're well, too, man. How you doing? Good. So uh, obviously this is sort of coming to a head. They're recommending charges be laid by the, the uh, Justice Department. Is this just all symbolic? Does it matter? What's the significance of this? Will it happen? Well, it, it doesn't matter for the Justice Department. They can go after charges against Donald Trump without having them referred to them by by this committee or anyone in Congress. They, they're an independent branch of government, can pretty well do what they want, so they don't need the referral. What the referral does is outlines it, – it kind of puts some pressure on the Department of Justice to take further steps. And these are pretty strong referrals. The one – the Obstruction of official proceeding, uh, conspiracy to defraud the U.S., conspiracy to make a false statement. It's the last one, inciting, assisting, or aiding comfort on an insurrection. If convicted of that, Donald Trump would be prevented from running for public office ever again. 
So that's that has real weight to it. I don't suspect that Donald Trump will ever see a day behind bars. I don't know if he'll be convicted. But spelling this out into four specific crimes that he committed on that day, and as seen by this committee, sends a very powerful message. Their goal was to make sure that it never happens again. To make sure it never happens again, they want accountability. And this is what they think Donald Trump is accountable for. So for all of that, it it also kind of it crystallizes and distills everything for for people who only pay, you know, a little bit of attention or no attention to it. Mm. And those who want to know, all right, what happened? Well, now you got four things. This is what he did on on the day of the insurrection. This is what we're accusing him of doing. And so it's it, it is important symbolically. It's important uh for uh, the Justice Department to go forward, although they don't need it. And it's important for Congress and specifically tying it up before the end of the year when the Republicans take over and will try to, you know, unravel everything when they take over the House in January. Uh, You said the Department of Justice doesn't need this. They can move forward either way. Will they? And if they do, when would this all come to a head? When would they decide to move forward? Well, I think they have been moving forward. There is a grand jury impaneled and there have been subpoenas and they've been taking testimony. And don't forget, Clark, one of the people referred to for prosecution, was dragged out of his house in his undies uh, you know, a few months ago when they searched his home. So, uh, yes, they are moving forward. And Jack Smith, who now heads that investigation, Merrick Garland, uh, put him in as special prosecutor. He only has one job to do, and that's to over see the prosecution of Donald Trump. I've often thought that it would be ironic if on January 6th of 2024, which is a Friday, and the DOJ loves to drop these indictments on a Friday, I think it would be interesting to see if, in fact, January 6th of 2024, there is an indictment uh, brought to Donald Trump. But as it is, this is a, a, a this is one heck of a Christmas present for Donald Trump, if nothing else. Will this, we've seen, uh, you know, in situations like this, just end up favoring the president? Does this boost the base, or are we seeing with polling and such that Republicans, they've just had enough of this? Well, I think Repu- they don't. Republicans don't have anybody to lead them. Donald Trump is their de facto leader. It's not going to be Ron DeSantis. They don't like uh, Liz Cheney, although she's probably one of the uh, more uh politically attractive candidates for them because she could reach across the aisle, but she would never get uh, past a primary. You know, at, at the end of the day, <laughs> all I can say is that this is probably the last uh, thing you'll hear from Congress about Donald Trump. And Donald Trump, you know, look, what can I tell you, man? He's out there hawking NFTs, He's grifting people. So so let me on his own card trading card. So let me ask you about that, Brian. Let me ask you about that, because there was this big tease that there's going to be this big announcement. And many thought it was had something to do with the election campaign. And instead, he was launching his own uh, trading cards again. (laughs) At what point do they just say, you know, I'm tired of getting sucked in by this guy? Well, I think they are. You know, to your point, I think, you know, at this point, when you're selling NFTs, man, you're (laughs) as a political candidate. And look, let's be honest about what that was, too. That is a tax dodge. You could buy up to $9,900 worth of these things. $10,000 is a cutoff to be, you know, reviewed by by uh, uh, the IRS. So he's, you know, 
probably laundering money that he's going to use in his defense when he gets indicted. And that's what this is. Who knows who bought him or why? But Donald Trump is a grifter, is a con man. And yeah, the, the, the GOP is done with him. But like I said, they got nobody to turn to yet. What about uh, there was polling last week or a week or so ago that said people like DeSantis were, were polling better than Donald Trump and a couple of other uh, prominent Republicans, you know? I'm sure they are probably they they probably are polling better among Republicans, but the Republicans only have Ron DeSantis is is Donald Trump, who's smarter and more surly. He can't he doesn't have the cross uh, party appeal. And the rest of the Republican Party is knee deep or hip deep or shoulder deep or neck deep in the insurrection. None of them will have have, you know, Pompeo, all of them. Mark Meadows, they're all, you know, when when uh, Jamie Raskin said, you know, Donald Trump and others, that's a motley crew. And, and there are people that are changing their depends right now because they know that the DOJ will probably come after them. So they don't have like I said, they I, they have an appeal inside the GOP. But the GOP doesn't have enough appeal to win uh, a presidency just with those voters who vote for the GOP. They have the only one that could do that right now is Liz Cheney, and she couldn't win. She could probably win a general election. She couldn't get out of a GOP primary. That just seems absolutely bizarre. Is there anybody in the Republican power uh, party who uh, understands that, who realizes she could be a very formidable candidate for them? No, no, these are Republicans. They they, they still, you know, some of them are still <laughs> adhering to Donald Trump and the rest of them love Ron DeSantis. Uh, so the Republicans, you know, they'll dig a deep hole for themselves and the Democrats will barely crawl over that. So neither party is what I would, you know, I would hope hope we could aim a little bit higher. But uh, the Republicans still seem hell-bent on going as low as they can go. Brian J. Karam with us, political analyst for CNN, White House reporter, columnist with Salon.com, and the Washington Diplomat. Brian, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Oh, you too. Always a pleasure. And, you know, watch the cold weather. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. You're no doubt hearing about that horrific shooting up in Vaughan, north of Toronto. Uh, yesterday, uh, five people shot, as, and including the shooter. That makes six uh, that are dead. And to talk more about all of this, give us an update on a uh, police news conference, which was held earlier on this afternoon. Tracy Tong is with us, Global News anchor, producer, and here now. Tracy, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Hi, Scott. Thanks so much. Uh, obviously, a very tragic situation in Vaughan. I can't imagine uh, what the mood is up in that area right now. Police held a news conference earlier today. What can you tell us? Yeah, I mean, I can tell you this incident has shaken not only the residents of this building and those who live around here, but really the entire city of Vaughan. The mayor stopped by here earlier today. Uh, you're right that the police chief also held a uh, press conference conference as well, outlining some of the details of just the, the horrific moments that unfolded in the span of, I would say, about an hour last night. Uh, so what we know so far about what happened is that police received a call at around 7.20 p.m. to this condo building that residents around here have described as very safe. It's, it's a, fr- a family-friendly area. 
Um, and, and they got a call about an active shooter at that time. Now, police say it only took about three minutes and 20 seconds to arrive on scene. But what they found was just, just something that they, nobody could prepare for. Uh, they at first found a couple of victims in, in units, in multiple um, uh, condo units. Um, and, and they found more victims as time went on. Um, at, the, at the end of it all, about five victims that were deceased, they found, uh, and one that survived and is in hospital at this time. And uh, the suspect, a shooter, was found on the third floor of this building. Police uh, had an interaction with this uh, suspect, and they shot that suspect, and that suspect was pronounced dead about 40 minutes after all of this began. So you can imagine, you know, during that time, 40 minutes can feel like a lifetime wow. for these residents who are scared, uh, who are seeing SWAT officers enter their, their hallways, telling people to either, you know, lock themselves into their units or go down and evacuate. And it took a very long time for, for police to clear this building. And, and the entire time, residents, you know, not knowing is sometimes the most terrifying thing. So uh, it was 40 minutes after the initial call before they actually shot the shooter, per se? We know that it was 40 minutes until the suspected shooter was pronounced dead. Uh, now, okay. whether there had been uh, gunfire before that between the officer uh, at, at the suspected shooter, uh, that's unclear at this point as to what exactly that timeline looked like. Uh, but we know that, you know, during all of those 40 minutes until someone had been confirmed dead. And, and also at that time, you have to remember, Scott, that police don't really know the situation at the very large building. Mm. Was there a second possible suspect out there? Were there multiple people who were carrying out this attack, right? So um, all of these things in play, uh, certainly a very terrifying experience for everybody here, including those first responders who, who came to the scene to find all of that. And we understand that this happened over three separate uni- units, as you said, uh, then the shooter killed uh, by police later. Um, but we understand that everybody it was a resident of the building. Is that accurate? Yes. So those uh, details did come out in a press conference by the police chief today. A-, a lot of blanks still have to be filled. But what we were told today was that uh, there were three units that this happened in um, and that uh, that three people who were killed were actually condo board members Hmm. now the rest of this still under investigation police are being very vague in terms of what a motive could have been but the fact that they pointed out that three of the victims were condo board members uh, certainly alludes to some sort of connection there we've also been talking to residents around here who uh, know this um suspect and the suspected shooter very uh, well in terms of having seen him around the building, a 73-year-old man named Francesco Villi. Um, and uh, they, they know that he has had grievances with the condo board. Um, mm. It was a well-known thing that he had a, uh, that he had a, um, uh, a court appearance um, coming up that residents have told us about and that we have seen documents for as well. So there, there are certainly a lot of things and a lot of factors brewing here under the surface. Police, of course, not confirming, and it's still too early to rule anything out or say anything def- definitively, but you can bet that they are certainly looking at that as a large part of this investigation. And obviously a lot of this still under investigation and questions being asked and such, but what do we know, Tracy, about the weapon used? Anything? 
So the Special Investigations Unit, which has also been called in because uh, the police interaction with the suspected shooter is what caused that death, uh, they have confirmed that the weapon used was a semi-automatic handgun. Now, I actually posed the question to the police chief today, you know, what was a 73-year-old doing with a semi-automatic handgun? Uh, Was he a a registered gun owner? Uh, The police chief at this point could not tell us, um, and, and that's something that's under investigation as well. Uh, but, um, you know, certainly very, very scary for, for residents around here. We also spoke with uh, some former, a, a former condo board member who, who knew this man, actually. And he's had several, um, has had several run-ins with him in the past. And uh, he says that he actually tried to help when the resident, when Billy uh, complained about um, certain issues with an electrical room. And he says, you know, had I not helped him in the past, I wonder if my fate could have been different last night. Wow. Holy smokes. Uh, now, are there any announcements of any future uh, news conferences? When or Do you know when we will know any more information? So at this point, um, the victims have not yet been publicly identified, and the coroner's investigation is ongoing, and that's the reason for that. So we know that there will be an update from the coroner's office and from police uh, when they are able to positively identify and, of course, after next of kin uh, has been notified for all of those those victims. Um, but I can tell you the, the outpouring of support, of grief um, from the community is just immense here. People are crying and, and they're very heartbroken about what has happened. It is an unimaginable incident and now five victims... Mm. Uh, are, are killed and one recovering in hospital but you know that is something that is going to stay with that victim that surviving victim for the rest of her life tracy tong with us global news anchor and producer uh, up in vaughn talking about that horrific shooting that has taken place tracy thanks so much for the time much appreciated thanks for having me scott you're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. There's been lots of chatter about the Bank of, Governor, uh, Bank of Canada Governor Tiff Macklem and whether he has had a handle on what is going on with inflation and raising interest rates. Uh, many saying that didn't do it soon enough. Uh, and then when did, uh, hitting us with um, uh, increase after increase after increase to where we are uh, today. Interesting headline in the Globe and Mail today that says Bank of Canada missed the mark on rising inflation. Tiff Macklin says, but turnaround is near. So now uh, admitting, I guess, that there is an issue. Let's bring in Eric Cam, professor of economics with the uh, Metro Toronto Metropolitan University and is with us now. Eric, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Always a pleasure and happy Hanukkah. Back at you. Uh, many have talked about uh, blaming the Bank of Canada governor. Others have stuck up for them, saying uh, stuck up for him, saying this just erodes the trust in in these public inst- institutions. But now he's saying that he has some explaining to do, or they do. The Bank of Canada. What does this say to you? Is this a change of tone? Um, it tells me that as much as we advertise and we get a signal that the Bank of Canada and the government are separated and are not one and the same, that maybe they're a little bit more closely linked than they would have at first advertised. Because I think what Dr. Macklem uh, should apologize for is not the way that they've approached inflation fighting, but you have to go back like any disease to the cause of it. And it was the amount of pure dollars that were printed during the pandemic. Everybody knows that that 
was an overreach. It is it is that nothing, nothing else that has put us where we are today. So I don't blame the Bank of Canada with I mean, what does the Bank of Canada do, Scott? It has two things in its holster. It can change the money supply or it can change the interest rate. But that's it. There's no magic fluid that exists that they can pour onto a problem and make it go away. So what they're dealing with now is that the government told them, asked them, persuaded them to make sure that our economy had a certain level of liquidity during the pandemic. And they did that. They did it ridiculously, but they did it. And so now they are admitting and saying we did it too much. There was too many dollars chasing way too few goods. And part of that problem is the supply chain, which was out of their hands. But no matter how you like to sell it, it was too many dollars, too few goods, too much spending. And that's where we are today. So I don't think they should apologize for where they are today. I think they should apologize for the lack of foresight on the part of themselves and the government for the amount of money printed during the pandemic. Many have asked or questioned the involvement between the Bank of Canada and the government. Does one react to the other? And usually you get a no. But this basically says the opposite, does it not? Well, yes. I mean, this really comes down to a he said, she said, or whatever we're allowed to call it today. I mean, this is the problem. We tell our students, and if you watch the news, you'll often hear the two arms say, the government over here, even the finance minister over here and the bank over here, saying, well, you know, we're at arm's length. We don't we don't really talk much. We're, you know, we're just kind of on that feeling each other out stage. But we know that that's ludicrous because the Bank of Canada didn't wake up and say, let's print all this money. 80% of the dollars in circulation today, Scott, 80%, don't fall off your stool, was printed during the pandemic. Mm. That wasn't the Bank of Canada, Scott. That wasn't Tiff Macklin waking up in the morning and saying, let's have, see how fast we can print out dollar bills. That was the government saying, we're in a pandemic, we want people to stay home. So here you go, Bank of Canada, get it done. They did. Now the government's coming out and saying, okay, Bank of Canada, inflation's at about 8%, really it's about 6.9, but you know, it's the holidays. It's about 8% cure it and the bank of canada is saying well we can cure it but we can't do it overnight and people are saying well why not mr polyev is saying well why not and your job should be on the line and it's not that i hate mr polyev he's bringing up issues that nobody else is bringing up but if he would sit down for a second and think you can't take a problem in the billions and trillions of dollars and solve it overnight that's not fair to do to the bank Oh, so is this the uh, federal government's fault for putting pressure on the Bank of Canada to do this? I think it's the federal government's fault for the amount of money, the amount of liquidity and the amount of inefficiency we saw during the pandemic. So is the Bank of Canada falling on the sword for the feds? Yes, the Bank of Canada is falling on the sword because the Bank of Canada, again, you know, this isn't Hogwarts. The Bank of Canada can't do magic. Uh, my son will appreciate that. He's eight, by the way. Well, hmm. The Bank of Canada can only do a couple of things, and they've been asked to bring down the rate of inflation. And so they're going about it in the only way that a bank can bring down inflation. But again, you know, they're being asked to bring down a problem in the seven, eight, nine digits of dollars. You can't do that in an hour. We're not a physics laboratory, Scott. You can't pull a lever and watch the values go up and down. This actually has to work through the, the national financial system, the international financial system. And we're going to be a year or two into, into this inflation fighting. And that's just, unfortunately, 
a reaction of a natural capitalist economy. If you're going to make it go up really fast, well, you got to let it go down, but it's going to go down a lot slower. And while people can say, isn't that a failing of an economy? It's not a failing of an economy, just how the economy works. Um, the deputy prime minister and the prime minister will say this is a world problem. Everyone's suffering from inflation. It's no different here. What's your response? Well, that's fine. It's rhetoric, but it's fine. The reality is, is that some countries are suffering from inflation and some countries aren't. And some countries are suffering more inflation than others. And again, I don't like to, I'm only an economist, but I don't like to play this magician game of look over here, don't look over here. And they find some small country in some small nation off some small island that has a worse inflation problem than us. (laughs) Don't do that. Don't do it. Just look at Canada, look at where we are, and acknowledge we made some mistakes. We're not the only country that made mistakes, and we're not the only country having problems in solving those mistakes. But don't don't do the switch, the bait and switch thing. We are here right now. We have seven percent inflation. Food is going up sadly at about eleven percent. And let's let's actually government, let's turn our attention to making people's disposable incomes a little bit better off. And so people have a little bit of money to spend at the holidays and perhaps buy their children presents. And even if that's not possible, let's at least feed our children and keep roofs over our head. That has to be more important than trying to sell people on economic fantasy. Eric Ham with us, professor of economics, Toronto Metropolitan University. Always fun, Eric. Thanks for the time. Be well. Happy, healthy New Year, Scott. Lots of chatter about, we, remember we promised during the uh, global pandemic that we'd fix our ailing healthcare system that everybody was so busy bragging about, they thought it was perfect. They didn't think there was any holes in it until, of course, the healthcare staff started saying, we're on our knees, we need some help here. And there's been lots of chatter about trying to get it together. The provinces are trying to get together with the prime minister. That doesn't seem to be working. Um, yet today, we heard uh, the deputy premier, sorry, deputy prime minister, Christia Freeland, and on Ontario Education Minister Stephen Lecce talked about how they had hammered out, uh, along with the feds, the provinces, and those who do all the work, a plan for daycare. And then we had a plan for dental care just before that, and they're talking about a pharmacare plan. All of these are provincial jurisdictions, and we seem to be able to hammer out an agreement for a big uh, uh, announcement with lots of pomp and circumstance, but we cannot meet for health care. What is the deal? Uh, Randall Denley recently wrote in the National Post a quick fix for all of this uh and it's simply um making people put a little money into the uh kitty it's not as weird as you might think and the article is a quick fix for ailing medicare introduce patients copay like every other developed western nation randall denley is with us now uh author and uh, also columnist for the ottawa citizen and national post randall thanks for the time i hope you're well I am, Scott. Thanks. So we mentioned earlier on about the Deputy Prime Minister and uh, the Education Minister getting together, bragging about how the feds and the provinces and territories are all working together, and most importantly, the people that do the work, and they've hammered out this agreement. We've done it for uh, dental care, uh, sort of, and talking about pharmacare. These are all provincial jurisdictions, yet we cannot get this sort of cooperation, this sort of meeting uh, when it comes to health care. Why not? I think probably because of megabucks. The the premiers want twenty eight billion dollars now, about ten billion of which will go to Ontario, and then they want a six percent increase every year after that, which is double what the federal government's been giving them. So it's a lot of money, and the, and the federal government says not wrongly on the surface that well, if we're going to spend that, you know, we'd like to see 
some kind of reform. We like to see, you know, more reporting on results and all that. We all good. Although, you know, I think Scott, your my first thought was, gee, that wouldn't be a stalling tactic, would it? <laughs> uh, Trudeau what? was saying before the election. Well, after the election, we can talk about this. And during the pandemic as well, you know, after the pandemic, we can talk about this. Like, oh, yeah, more, more money. But, you know, there's always some reason why the check isn't going to be uh, written. But, you know, when you look at Ontario's stance, it's it's not any more intellectually pleasing. You know, Doug Force, oh, yeah, we need all kinds of money for health care, long-term care, home care, mental health addiction, you name it. We need money. We're desperate for money. And then, of course, you know, when opposition parties say, well, if you need more money, Premier, why don't you spend it? Well, we've already put, uh, you know, billions of dollars into our health budget, 5.6 billion new money this year. So we're putting lots of money in. If you're somebody, you know, who lives in Ontario and is a little concerned about the state of health care, my reaction is, Oh come on, guys! You know, so who's going to do is, something? Get it together and do it. But the bottom line of this, I think, is that both sides are saying, "Well, yeah, more money's going to have to be spent." It's just a case of apparently a very indeterminate period of arm wrestling. Before that so happens. who who is responsible for these reforms, Randall? Because the the premier has been very adamant about adding, uh, uh, you know, private help. It's not credit card medicine, but the way the other Western nations develop, what Western nations have been doing it, similar to what you're saying in your piece. Um, and the pro and the prime minister said, "Well, uh, I'm not talking unless you're in, the provinces are interested in reform." I think the provinces are interested in reform. It's there's only so much reform you could do under the Canada health act because they hold all the strings so whose responsibility is it for the reforms well if the feds want reform i think they have to say what it is and they haven't really said that other than you know reporting and so forth but reporting on what that doesn't really constitute reform what are we going to do differently and you know i'm glad you mentioned the canada health act because i think that is the thing that really stops every creative idea we have in canada it sounds great. You know, it was written in 1984. Don't, there won't be any money spent. You don't have to open your wallet. You want health care in Canada? It's there for you. Except it isn't. And what's happened in all those years, population has aged. The cost of health care has gone up dramatically. We've got lots of new treatments, new drugs, wider scope of what we do. So it's a different deal than it was when the Canada Health Act was brought in. But we act like you know, Moses brought this one down. Kind of <laughs> health act. Well, that could never be changed. So why? It's an act of parliament. You know, it's, it's a rule that made sense in 1984. Doesn't make sense in 2022. And I'm speaking to an Ottawa doctor that I know, and he's got a very simple idea. And I think a lot of good ideas are simple ideas. He runs a, a family health clinic. So the money they have is the money that docs take in through their billings. And the theory of these clinics in Ontario was that, oh, these would be great. You had a bunch of doctors working together, and then they could hire a whole bunch of other people, you know, nurses and therapists and physicians' assistants. They could do all this stuff. Then these clinics can really provide a variety of services to their patients. But there isn't enough money in it to allow doctors to do all of that. So his idea is pretty straightforward. 
look, if every time you went to the doctor you paid a $10 fee, you can call it a medical facility fee, whatever you want. Parking? Well, <laughs> yeah, parking's free at his place, but but for the right to see the doctor and to be a patient, get service, you pay $10, which is not going to be an issue for most people. So just if that one clinic alone, that would give them enough money to hire um, extra um, nurse practitioner, a physician's assistant. It would let that clinic see between 20 and 40 additional patients every day. And if we're going to fix something in healthcare, I mean, God knows everything needs to be fixed, really, but we're going to start with the base, the foundation. If we don't have a good primary care system, everything else gets strained. And one of the problems primary care has is that, you know, people are working and they think, well, like we're just, we can't do the job we're supposed to do, right? And the government will turn around and say, well, we want you guys to work harder. And they say, well, we're already working as hard as we can. We need more people. But there's no money. Now, the government could provide the same money itself quite easily. But the thing I like about it, Scott, from a patient's point of view is if you're a patient of that clinic, you're putting your money into the clinic, they're accountable to you, and you have better access to care. Cuts out the feds, cuts out the province, the middlemen are all cut out. This is money that's going 100% to improve your own health care. So is this reform, Randall, is it possible under the Canada Health Care Act? Well, sadly not, because, you know, we can't pay So how can we, how can we make... Would break the back of the system. So how can we have any reform if reform goes against everything we think the health care system's all about? It's, it's, it's like going in a giant circle. Oh, it is a giant circle, and we've been going in that same circle for years. I've covered this probably for about 30 years, Scott, and we've, yeah. we've had the same debate over and over, you know. We look at other countries that have better results than we do. They have a public system and a private system parallel, typically, and they have co-payments. But we don't want to do any of the things they do, and then we wonder, why do we spend so much and get so little? It's really a mystery. Oh, yeah, but we're better than the states. That's the key thing, better than the states, and we are. But that's not who you want to compare yourself to in this context. We want to compare ourselves to other countries that are more similar to us, like any European country. I, I think if the Prime Minister wants to do one thing, and it wouldn't cost them 10 cents, they say, okay, I'm kind of open to this co-payment idea. You know, we could uh, have a little flexibility in the Canada Health Act. And as we've seen in a you know, much more important document, the Constitution, if a province or two provinces, they could have the Constitution. That's, that's all well and good, but we just decided we're going to do something different. And then the ball's in the federal government's court. And they say, oh, mm. okay, well, they haven't done too much about any of that. And I have a feeling that when it comes to Canada Health Act, if the Ontario government said, look, here's a plan we've got that's really going to boost primary care, and it's going to cost you $10 every time you go to the doctor, which for most mm. people is not very often. You'd want a, a limitation on income there. If you're a low-income person, you wouldn't have to pay. But... Yeah. Many people can afford this, and at least you get something. I just love the government to see, okay, we're doing that. Just some sort of reform. You want to, you want to, that's a reform. If you want to try to stop this reform, well, that's up to you. Randall Denley is with us. Going to benefit patients. Randall Denley is with us, uh, columnist for the Ottawa Citizen and National Post, looking for reform in the healthcare system where reform is not allowed. Randall, thanks for the time. Be well.
Okay. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Scott Radley with his host of the Scott Radley Show. Coming up after the 6 o'clock news, you can also read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Scott, I thoroughly enjoyed uh, the fun uh, we had on Friday uh, doing the big uh, roundtable thing. Uh, and uh, kudos to you for putting that together. You know what? It's, uh, it's a fun thing to let... Um People who people hear every day, but asking all the questions actually just participate as participants. It's more difficult, I think, to answer the questions and ask them. Uh, sometimes it is, although, um, you know what? You guys did really good. I mean, really well. Let's, let's be grammatically correct. Um, you did really well. And, 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 you know, some of the stuff, too, is it, it's we tried to pull away. If, if people didn't hear it, they can go to 900CHML.com and go to shows and go to my show and then go back to Friday, find the podcast. But it's also about trying to find some things that are not just the everyday news of every single day, yeah. which is, um, you know, it, it was fun. It was a good time. Uh, it's funny. I was talking with uh, Alan Cross earlier today, uh, speaking of those types of issues, and you might want to go with this. Uh, he's got a great article on the Global News site. Um, at what point when you lose members of a band, do you stop calling them the huh. band? Interesting. <laughs> I just watched a part of a like an, a YouTube. I don't even know if it was. I guess it's a documentary. It was a thing on ACDC. How I got onto this, I have no idea. And at one point, they were looked like they were going to be down to Angus Young. And again, okay, Angus Young is, you know, other, he is the original guy, like really the original Mm -hmm. star. So I guess you can get away with it, but still, I mean, it's, it's like the who is down to Townsend and Daltrey. It's not really the who and the Eagles. I mean, I saw the Eagles a few years ago and there were three of the five and it's like, well, at least it's a quorum. It's an eagle. Well, it's not just one eagle, but it's not a flock of eagles. It's a pair of eagles. It's it's some eaglets. And then two eaglets. Um, (laughs) So it's a great question. I don't know when the... When you can cease doing it. I, I, I would guess that if you have fewer than half, it no longer counts. Or what happens when you're a band like Queen when you just lose the lead singer? And, you know, well, I guess it's down to that less than that now. But, well, you know, Journey, it, Journey like, did like the, the same. Key, yeah, there you go. Journey did the same. And, and now the thing with, with Journey was it became like an incredible story how they found yeah. this guy in the Philippines who sang yep. stuff at karaoke. I mean, that, that, made, yeah. it, that made it really interesting. But for just an average band to go out and get someone, like, okay, Van Halen, when David Lee Roth left, yeah, you know, uh, was it the same? No, they made it work, and I guess it was still Van Halen, but I don't know. It's, it's, it's a great question, but I'm, I'm going with the halfway. If you've got fewer than half, you should no longer be calling yourself any, and if it's just one of you, then you go with, <laughs> you know, Angus Young and the ACDCs or something like that. Yeah. Well, at what point does it become a tribute band? That was the discussion we were having. Uh, like, that's you know, that's that, yeah. too, uh, that too. I didn't get to ask you. I didn't get to ask you about the World Cup at all. Mm. Uh, your thoughts shoot out. Hate uh, it. To yeah, <laughs> it's the same in any sport. Is it like hockey? Hate it. But you know what? Like we were watching football the other day, and it's uh, OT. Like what is overtime in football? That is just it's just bizarre. Okay, I, I, especially in okay. I get why you don't have endless soccer during the tournament. You don't. I mean, you have to play a game in a few days. Yeah. It would be a huge disadvantage if the game went on for seven hours. But in a World Cup final, where else do you have to be? So, like, play <laughs> until there's a goal. So, 
if play you, until nobody is standing. No, but okay. So you know, there's an easy way to do this, and and it would still be better. It would still be gimmicky, but it would be better. And that is, you play the the half hour of extra time as it was, and if it's still tied, then you go to a golden goal. So first yeah, goal wins. Yeah. That's what I thought. Too, and yeah. every say ten minutes, you take a player off the field. <laughs> and oh and God. eventually, you know what? By the time you get down, it won't be ridiculous because by the time you got down to nine on nine, let's say, and they start to get tired, something would break down and you would end yeah. up with a goal. It would not go on for hours and hours and hours, and it wouldn't be ludicrous like going down to say, we're going to go down to two on two. Uh, I mean, it, that would never happen. A guy would die if that happened. But I, I just, I just, the idea, Scott, of playing that great game and then doing a yeah. carnival game to decide who wins the World Cup seemed ludicrous. Scott Radley with us, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He's coming up after the 6 o'clock news. As always, Scott, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. This one comes from Mr. Lowe. It says that horrific gun violence has struck our area yet again. What we're used to seeing on TV, that's coming from across the board. It now seems to be a part of our society. It really is so tragic, and it really is just so senseless. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.